Take your Bibles this morning, turn to First uh, John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Uh, normal, normal pastors, normal pastors would look at First John chapter 4 and they would break it up into three messages or three talks. They would uh, probably go verses 1 through 6. And then 7 through 11 would be the second talk, and then 12 through 21 would be the third talk. But we all know I'm not normal, right? And, and so we're going to tackle all of chapter 4 today, all of chapter 5 next Sunday, so that we're ready for Christmas. And uh, First John will be done by the time uh, we are at the Christmas holiday uh, time period. And uh, so that's why we're doing it like this today. Uh, you're going to see an introduction, and then you're going to see the source of love, the example of love, and the application of love. And, it, and if we were to add, add something to that, as I was looking through it uh, earlier in the week, uh, maybe it would even be better for us to say we'll see the source of perfect love, the example of perfect love, and the application of perfect love, and we'll see it through this entire chapter. Okay? Now, remember, John has written this letter, but it's not as much a letter as it is a poetic uh, sermon as he was preaching and it was being written or, or, or scripted out and uh, then sent to some of those other churches. And he actually also uh, preached and taught this. Very, very poetic. Uh, and so by the time we get to chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 is amplifying everything that he has said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So you're going to hear some familiar things in chapter 4, and he's just trying to expand on what he has said in the first three chapters. That's what uh, some preachers do. They share with you what you've been, what you need to know, and then they go back and expand on it. That's exactly what John is doing here as he's preaching this passage. It's an introductory verses here in this passage, uh, verses 1 through 6. John's pushing his hearers to grow in the spiritual discipline of discernment. The spiritual discipline of discernment to be able to test what they're hearing, to see if what they're hearing is true, and to then identify the counterfeit. That's what this introduction to this chapter is all about, that, that we would have this spiritual discipline of discernment so that we might be able to identify what's being considered false. He calls them false teachers, false prophets, uh, false even false truths, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So that's what he's going to be doing in verses 1 through 6. Now, now maybe you haven't heard uh, the term spiritual disciplines very often, so if I could just give you a really simple definition of what a spiritual discipline is, uh, you'll be able to understand that as we move forward. Spiritual, it should be on the screen. Spiritual disciplines are habits, practices, and experiences that are designed to develop, grow, and strengthen certain qualities of spirit. Another way to think of spiritual disciplines is that you're stretching and working out your spiritual muscles. And it looks like several of you do that. You work, I mean, you work out. You do that. You know, the First Timothy 4 8 that says, while bodily exercise is of some value, godliness is of value in every single way. So I use that verse all the time when I decide not to work out. You know, I said, oh, it's just of some value. Godliness is way more important than working out. But the idea of spiritual disciplines is that you're flexing and working out. It's like that spiritual workout for you. And some spiritual disciplines are, are private. They're very personal. Fasting is very private and 
personal spiritual discipline. But there are other spiritual disciplines that are uh, that should guide us in our interpersonal relationships. They're good for community. Not only is praying a very good personal thing, but it's good to do that as a community. Worshiping the Lord together is good to do that as a spiritual discipline. These are just some of those things. But discernment can be both personal and interpersonal. And so John is, is helping this, these churches that he's written this letter to and, and that he's preached. He's helping them in the area of spiritual disciplines and spiritual discernment. So, so let's read about it. Chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he starts like this. Beloved, remember John's older now, and as he's speaking to these people, he's telling them how much he loves them. Your translation, if it's a different one than what I'm using, might use dear friends. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now immediately, John's done something here. He's given a negative imperative, a negative commandment, and he's backed it up on a positive commandment right away. And, and the way that we would read it, it would sound like it's a one-time thing. But in the original language, this is what John is saying. Stop believing every spirit. You've, you've heard it. We would say it like this today, probably a little bit like this. You can't believe everything you read, right? You can't believe everything that you hear. And what John is saying here is stop believing every spirit. Now, it's going to be important. But test the spirits or keep on testing. Continually test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, that sounds a little bit eerie when you say test the spirits, don't listen to the spirits. But that uh, word test, um, originally, it, 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 take, it has this idea of a, have you heard this? I've never heard this word before until I studied this passage, a metallurgist. It's the material. Okay, some of you that are chemists or did some of that stuff. Uh, understand that those are the materials that are used and, uh, to see if uh, if a metal is pure or if there are any impurities in it, whether it's steel or iron or even gold, uh, and, and the dross that would be found in silver, it would be to purify, to draw the dross out of the silver, to make it pure silver. So what, what John is saying here is test the spirits, Pull out what is genuine and what is right. See if there's anything that they're saying that is genuine and good and right. Now, this isn't the only place where that's said. Uh, um, Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, test everything, hold fast to what is good. Paul talked about this incredible church in Berea. In, in, um, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it's interesting that he says it this way. Now, the people of Berea were more noble than the people of Thessalonica. How'd you like that? The, the church in Fairbury was more noble than those in Pontiac. You know? Or the one in Pontiac is more noble than the one in Thessalonica. How would you like that to have been written down for eternity in Scripture? All right. Besides that point, it says this about them. They receive the word with eagerness. Uh, uh, some of you are pretty eager about Christmas. You, you started way too early, and, and you decorated early, and you were Christmas music in earlier, and I think June was done shopping in July, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and so you're just so eager for the season. 
they received the word with such eagerness that they actually examined the scriptures daily to see if what they were being told was actually true. This is exactly what you should be doing every single time I come up here and speak, or last week when Pastor Josh spoke, or a few weeks ago when Pastor Nick spoke. Don't sit there and just soak it all in and go, man, that's good. I don't know if to do that, but, but you should be sitting there examining and asking the question, is what he's saying true? Is it true? Because spiritual truth isn't discerned, known, or identified just by reason, okay? You know, many intellectual people that have no idea what spiritual truth is all about, they'll They'll examine the Bible and use all of their intellect and yet be missing the spiritual truth that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit for us to get. And that's proven in, in 1 Corinthians when Paul says, I am going, God is going to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I'm going to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I think intellectual intellectuals are often intoxicated with their own knowledge and their own wisdom, but in those methodologies of trying to understand Scripture, if they don't have a spiritual discipline, then all they are going to do is come up with their own worldly reason as to why this book was written. So John puts it uh, puts it this way in essence. Let's make it just really simple. This <coughs> if the truth is not from God. It's from the world. If spiritual truth is not from God, it's from the world. And the manager, the overseer of this world at this point in time, he's the one giving out the message. Do we know who the prince of this world is? Do we have a pretty good idea who that is? Who is that? The prince of this world is Satan. So if it's not from God, it's from the world, and that message is being managed by Satan. This is why there's such a need for a spiritual discipline of discernment, so that we aren't lulled to sleep or desensitized by what seems to be a really good message from the world, with bits and pieces of the truth, all while being saturated in the lie of worldliness. So how do we how do we detect a counterfeit? Uh, Julie was a teller several years, bank teller several years ago, and I happened to uh, come up to see her for a few minutes at her office. And and uh, I could not be a bank teller. Did you know that at the end of every day, your your cash it has to it has to balance. <laughs> that, that would be terrible. <laughs> for I would not. I, she comes home to, oh, I was off a dollar, I was off to, man, I would, that would stress, I'd have ulcers if I had to balance, uh, what do they even call those, trays, cash trays, I don't even know what they call them, but what, a drawer, thank you so much for some of these, but I can remember that, I walked in there, and she had, they had located a counterfeit hundred dollar bill, it looked cool, <laughs> and this thing was really Neat. And the reason that they could do that is because they've spent so much time looking at the real deal 
that they can they knew the counterfeit immediately. But I looked at it and said, wow, there is so much of this counterfeit $100 bill that looks real. And that's exactly what Satan does with worldly philosophy, idea, and truth. He's going to make it look really, really good and a lot like the genuine article, while saturated by a lie. So how, how, do, we, how do we detect this counterfeit? Uh, I'm going to give you three questions that could be asked when trying to uh, test the spirits. Please understand this, that when the word spirits is used in, in correlation with spiritual truth, that there's more at play here than just being smart. Okay? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that are not of this world. Okay? And, and so when John's talking about this spirit thing, that there's a lot more at play here than just trying to decide whether what they're saying is truthful by the fact that I'm a really smart person and can figure it out. So there's some ways. Uh, look at verse two, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I don't have time to uh, measure that out today. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you, have heard was which you heard was coming and now is in the world today. If you look at that and say, all right, he, John's talking about the Antichrist, he's in the world, and, and he's in the world today, some would intellectually look at this and go, look, at there's a contradiction. John actually thought that the Antichrist, who's coming in Revelation, was already there on earth. But it's not a contradiction. Remember, Satan is not all-knowing, he's not everywhere present, and he's not all-powerful. He knows that Jesus is going to return. He has no idea when Jesus is going to return. And he must always have an antichrist ready for that moment. So it's not contradictory. The question to ask here is a theological question. When trying to discern if someone is speaking spiritually, ask this question. Do they believe that Jesus is the Christ? Now, you've seen the phrase or the, or the title, Jesus Christ, or the name Jesus Christ. And, and you know, and I know, right, that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Like Jerry Bartholomew, Jesus Christ, okay? Christ is a title. It's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so to decipher, to be able to discern if something is truthful, it's, it's whether or not that person speaks of Jesus as the only way, the only truth, and the only everlasting life. John 14, 6. He is the Christ. It's important. Why is that important? Because there are some that believe that Jesus and Muhammad were brothers. There are some religions out there, some cultish religions out there, that believe that Jesus was a very good prophet, and so was Joseph Smith. He was at the same level type of prophet that Jesus was because Joseph Smith heard from the angel Moroni, wrote down, and Moroni had brought these golden plates filled with prophecies, and these prophecies were written out by Joseph Smith in the area of polygamy, and we now have the Book of Mormon. 
Because Jesus isn't the Christ. Same with Jehovah Witnesses. Jesus is not the only way. The very first basic question is a theological question that you could ask. What does this person believe about Jesus? Christ? Here's the second question. It's a behavioral type question. It's a behavioral type question. So here's the second question that could be asked. Do they exhibit evidence of eternal life? Do they exhibit evidence of eternal life? In verses 4 and 5, little children, loving, lovingly he says this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, you've heard this verse before, right? He, is, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God who is in you is greater than Satan, the one who is managing this world at this time. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Do they exhibit evidence of eternal life? That word overcome is the same word overcome that is found in John chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus says, uh, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We have God in us, the one who has overcome the world. He is in us. If we are followers of God, if we have this relationship to Jesus Christ, God is in us, and we have overcome the world. And he gives us a sneak peek. Look at uh, chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, and I think it's in verse 4. Let me see. Yes. Verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Does that person exhibit a life that is evidenced in the truth that he, is, he or she is living in eternal life? Now, there's a third question that could be asked. And let me just give you the question. Are they committed to the Word of God? Okay? So do they confess Jesus as the Christ? Do they exhibit evidence of eternal life? And the third question that we could ask so that we can test to see if it is a counterfeit gospel. Are they committed to the Word of God? I'm going to use two uh, slightly large words here, and so listen to them, but uh, let me explain them. So it just, it, it, I used to do this with teenagers all the time. I use big words. Go home and tell your parents just what I learned about in church, and, you know, I have a stand communion with Jesus Christ. You know, something really fun and big, the transubstantiation of it. Use those big words. So go home today and talk to somebody about these two words. Presuppositional apologetics. <laughs> apologetics means to defend what you believe. Presuppositional tells you how to do that. Now, what happens oftentimes with us as believers, and me included, that when we start to talk to people about Jesus, or if we were to share our faith, we do it in such a way that we try to prove that the Bible is true and we try to prove that God exists so that we can tell them why we believe. Presuppositional apologetics presupposes that God eternally exists and the Bible is already true. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that because I believe that the Bible is true and God exists, it is true. It says instead, because it is true that God exists eternally, 
and the Bible is true, I believe it. There's a big difference. In our world today, much of what we believe about truth becomes situational instead of absolute because it's about what I believe. And what I believe doesn't necessarily uh, control how I behave. But John is saying the exact opposite here. If we come at this from a place where the Bible is absolutely true and God is eternally existent and has given us his son Jesus Christ to be the savior of the world, if we come from a place that that is absolutely true, therefore I believe, then we have absolutes instead of situational ethics. And it controls, uh, it, it controls how we behave. That's what John is saying in the text. Verse 6, we are from God. So whoever knows God listens to us. And he's talking about those teachers that are teaching the word of God. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and that there is a spirit of error or a spirit of deception. The problem is American culture claims to that groundless conviction that they can determine for themselves what truth is. But like we've said over the last several weeks, evidence that we are Christians ought to be evident. <laughs> hey, that's the introduction. That's the introduction. Now let's look at the source of perfect love, the example of perfect love, and the application of perfect love, and what that means for us. Because what happens is John shifts gears into the second paragraph, and he proves his point by guiding us into these thoughts of love. Don't, don't disregard, don't set verses 1 through 6 aside, because the truth that's in verses 1 through 6, it gets amplified through verses 7 through 11. Okay, just like chapter 4 uh, amplified chapters 1, 2, and 3, these next verses amplify verses 1 through 6. Look, look at the verses. Verse 7. Beloved, he's back at that. Dear friends, let us love one another for love is from God. There's your source. Your source of perfect love is from God. And yet he starts out here, John starts out with the main point of this paragraph uh, with an exhortation, with uh, um, a prodding. The exhortation here is to love one another. And this is the first time in 1 John that this phrase is used as an exhortation. He said, because of the truth of verses 1 through 6, brothers, sisters, loved ones, love one another. It's my exhortation, it's my plotting to you. <laughs> so uh, I went on to the internet and you know, I tried to purchase one of these. When I was in high school, I worked at a hog confinement and we used a potter. It's one of those battery operated things that you hold on to, it's got a long rod at the end of it. There are two prongs on it and you just snap pigs with it as you're trying to move. And I, uh, I just, I wanted to buy one and then ask for a volunteer to see who would be willing to get prodded by that. And, but they're like 89 bucks. And I'm like, man, 20 bucks, I would have bought it. So, so we're not going to do that today. But if the idea here is, isn't it interesting that he, he kind of looks, this is how he's saying it's an exhortation. But in some of us, we have to be prodded. We have to be prodded to love one another. So let's be honest, uh, the philosophy and ideology of this world when it comes to the, just the idea of love, the world has twisted it and made it grotesque 
and distorted a view of what perfect love is, and, and yet John comes and he speaks as to, to us as to what perfect love is. How do we know it's distorted? If I use a really simple illustration, it might hurt somebody's feelings today. Uh, one of the longest-running reality television shows has gone for 22 seasons. And in those 22 seasons of The Bachelor, two relationships have succeeded. Point oh nine 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 percent percent found successful love. The Bachelorette did way better. Okay, out of fifteen seasons, five point three 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 percent. We, we have so distorted the idea of love. And, and I can promise you, I've not seen any of those shows. I have been horrified that my daughters have talked about it every once in a while. Absolutely horrified. Oh, oh do you even love Jesus? I mean, that really gets down to the core. It gets down to the core with them. And I've tried to back off of that kind of thing. There are things that they watch that I don't watch, and I have to go, this is okay. This is just spiritual discernment. I'm more spiritually discerning than they are. I would just like, I wasn't in my notes. Let me move on. Let me, uh, let me move on. All right, so we've distorted. But let's have a little bit of fun with it yet this morning. Um, a group of professionals posed the following question to a group of four to eight-year-olds. Here's the question. What does love mean? So this comes from some four to eight-year-olds. I have a bunch. I really only have time for four or less, but I'll give you four. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. <laughs> love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day because a cat won't do that <laughs> when you love somebody your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you little <laughs> stars come out alright anyway this is a good one when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands have arthritis too. That's love. All right, good. We got an awe. Now, throughout the text here, from chapter 4, verse 7, to chapter 5, verse 3, the word love in the original language is the word agape, a perfect love. And, and from chapter 4, verse 7 to chapter 5, verse 3, that word is used 30 times. 30 times. John is telling us how we can have perfect love. So let's look at it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8 is the reverse of that, the negative of that. Anyone who does not love or does not know God, because, here it is, God is Love. God is love. This is his very nature. It's the source of perfect love. God is love. God defines love. This is important. God defines love. Love does not define God. He is the source of perfect love. So he defines love. Love doesn't define God. 
Let, let me just real quickly here, just, just give you a really, really simple, not all encompassing, but a simple definition of agape love. If you, if you just can hang with me for a little bit. Simple definition, it's unconditional. It's a love that seeks the highest good for the one who is being loved. It's a love of total commitment. If I could say it this way, agape love, this is what God would say. Agape love is not God saying, I love you if dot, dot, dot. Agape love, God says, I love you because. And then he lists it all out here. It's not God loves you if, it's God loves you because. He is the source of love. God cannot fall in love. Right? God cannot fall in love. He's the source of perfect love. God cannot fall in love the same way that water cannot become wet. <laughs> water is wet, right? God is is love. And verse 7 says, those who have been born of God love God. It's in our DNA. It's in our DNA. So how does he show us that love, that perfect love? How does he show it to us? Romans 5, 8, Paul says it like this in what Pastor Nate believes is the best book in the entire Bible, Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The example of perfect love is Jesus Christ sent as our Savior. That's the answer to that. And that's found in verses 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed. It was made clear. This is the incarnation. In, the, in this is, love, is the love of God. It was made manifest among us, here with us, that God sent his only, unique, one-of-a-kind, that's what the word only there means, unique, one-of-a-kind son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, there's a great big word, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The example of perfected love is God sending his love. The greatest love that God could show to us is that he caused this mission of sending the love that God had, the perfect love that God has for us, caused the mission of Jesus, his one and only, unique, one-of-a-kind son, to come to this world to be the Savior of the world. This love that God has for us is so great that the purpose behind sending his son was so that we might live through him, John 10, 10. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have life to the fullest, that there's victory in this life, that we shouldn't, Christians shouldn't be curmudgeons just looking to die, that there should be this life that is within us, and that people would see that difference as we love one another. His love is so great that it, demonst it was demonstrated to us by the cost. The cost is this, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? It means that a debt was paid, a penalty was paid. It means to appease the wrath of God. 
Jesus gave his life not simply to die to cover our sins by shedding his blood. He did it to appease God's wrath that was to be poured out on you and on me. Now, uh, some translations are a little bit different, and so they explain that word instead of using the word propitiation. Some of your translations might have the phrase atoning sacrifice. Let me just encourage you, though, that if your translation just says sacrifice, write, write, it's okay to write in your Bibles. It really is. Before that, please put the word atoning before that. Because it's one thing to be sacrificial. It's quite another to be an atoning sacrifice. There's a big, big difference, translation-wise, when it comes to that. Okay? So the example of love is Christ. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So let's get to the third thing, the application of love. What does that look like in verses 12 through 21? No one has ever seen God. I wish we had more time there to really explain that. If I could just real quickly, when you're testing the spirits to see if something is true or not true, when the Bible says that no one has seen God, and then we see these books that are written where someone has seen God, no problem. Now in the Old Testament, there are times when Moses and Jacob says that they saw God. But as you do a study of those, those are theophanies. They're a manifestation of God so that humans can see the glory of God. Okay? So test the spirits. Test what is being said. By this we know, uh, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit, John 14, 26. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verses 12 through 21, then amplify verses 7 through 7 through 11. And here's what's crazy. If God is the source of love, and Jesus is the example of unconditional love, and God is invisible, what is John saying here? John is saying the way that you make God visible because he is invisible is by loving others the way that God has loved you. In order for people to see and know who the invisible God is of the universe, it can only be seen as we love one another as God in Christ has loved me and has sacrificed for me. That's how we love one That's why the word abide is found six times in six verses here. It's a reminder that as we remain in God, and he abides or remains in us so that we can love one another. And verse 17 says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In verse 13, John says, By this we know we're confident. In verse 14, John does this really, it, 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 it could be passed over he could have said that God sent Jesus, but instead he said the Father sent the Son as a reminder to Christians that you have a relationship with God, and you have a relationship with God as the Father, and you have a relationship with God as the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. He gets really personal there. And then in verse 16 he says this, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, which is another reminder, amplifying the truth, 
that intellectual assent will not get you into a relationship with God. You must know God and you must believe God and the love that he has poured out for you and that he has given you his unique one-of-a-kind son to die on the cross for your sin, to appease the wrath of God so that you and I can have a relationship with him. And the only way other people are going to know that is if the, the God of love is pouring in through me and I have that DNA and show that kind of love to other people. That's the only good way that they're going to recognize that there's an eternal God. As I abide in God, He gives me confidence and He gives me a love that makes me <coughs> fearless. Fearless in the day of judgment, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we give an account for the things we have or have not done in the body. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses nine through eleven. This is what He's talking about. This is the context here. He's not talking about being fearless in everything we do. It's about being able to stand before God and say, "I love people." And I can stand before God, perfected by his love. Verses 19 through 21 sum up uh, all of chapter 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. John's been really nice. Right, right up until here. Even the exhortation to love one another, he softens it from verse eight or verse 7 and 8 to verse 11. He softens it. He says, no, we ought to love one another. He softens it. Then he says, here, if you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. You're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And this isn't new for John. John wrote it in his gospel. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John's logic here is flawless. Understand John's logic of what he's saying in, in uh, 1 John chapter 4. He's saying this, if you and I don't have the ability to love our brothers and sisters who we can see, it is impossible to love the God that we cannot see. His logic is flawless. Let me close your Bibles. I want that to stay up on the screen. Let's just process for a moment. My person that says, I love God, but I don't love others. It's not me. It's not me. John says, you're a liar. And John's logic is flawless. If we don't love our brothers and sisters, who we can see, it is absolutely impossible to love, perfected love, sacrificial love, total committed love, a God whom you cannot see. <coughs> Flawless. Two, just maybe two questions this morning. Have you, don't answer out loud, I just want you to process for a moment, have you experienced the love of God? Verse 16, it says, we know and believe, confessing Christ as Lord, and we understand because of that, we know and believe, we have a relationship with the love of God being infected into us. 
Do you have God's DNA within you? Do you have the John 14 Holy Spirit within you? And if you don't, that's the place to start. To do what John says here and confess Jesus is Lord and know that truth to be absolutely true. Not because you believe it, but because it's absolutely true. And not only know it, but believe it and confess it. If you don't have that love relationship with God, he wants to have that relationship with you. That's why we can call him the Father and call Jesus the Son. Now, if you shift your... Oh, you didn't shift your head. Yeah, because I didn't want you to respond. If you, inside your mind, uh, said, yes, I love God, and I want to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, my only question for you today is will you take the moment that we're going to take here in, in just a second, just a moment, and be thankful for the faithful love of God in your life. And if you've processed it all a little bit this morning, the sacrifice of the unique one-of-a-kind son for your salvation to take on the wrath of God that you and I deserve, that I deserve, you could just be thankful for the salvation. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Would you just be thankful? in this moment for the faithful love of God and the sacrifice that Jesus